I want to begin by making an apology, and here's my apology. So I titled this series, and some of y'all pay more attention to things like this than others, but I, I titled the series, it's, it's been up here every week, By Faith, Believing God in an Unbelieving World. And I think that's actually misleading, the more I've thought about it. And here's why. It would not have been misleading if I had named it By Faith, Believing God in Our unbelieving world. In other words, the world that's immediately around us in the United States. We feel that, don't we, as Americans who live in the West? We feel like our world's becoming increasingly unbelieving, and that certainly gives us pause. It gives us consternation. It makes us wonder kind of what is the future of Christianity. But the reason why this is misleading is though this is true in the United States and the broader West, that, that Christianity is losing its place of authority and power. It's losing its cultural foothold that Christianity seems to be declining in the West. It is not declining in the rest of the world. The truth is that our broader world is not an unbelieving world. That what we are seeing today, and we've seen it really since the 80s, is not a global decline of Christianity, but a global shift. That as Christianity is losing its position of power in the West, it's actually gaining and growing in the third world. And there is a, a history professor, a researcher named Philip Jenkins, who really opened my eyes to this about 10 years ago uh, when I was studying in seminary. Uh, he's actually now at Baylor University, so if there's any bears here today, sick them, that's good. Um, really eye-opening work on not only the history of religion, but global trends and what that actually means for the future of Christianity. He called his book, The Next Christendom, The Next Christendom. And the book is, what does the future of Christianity look like? when the center of Christianity is no longer in the West, but it's actually in the third world. He summarized this idea in an article he wrote in The Atlantic. I want to read to you the quote. The article he wrote in The Atlantic on the next Christendom. Jenkins says, If we look beyond the liberal West, we see that another Christian revolution, quite different from the one being called for in an affluent American suburbs and an upscale urban parishes is already in progress. Worldwide, Christianity is actually moving towards supernaturalism and neo-orthodoxy, and in many ways towards the ancient worldview expressed in the New Testament, a vision of Jesus as the embodiment of divine power, who overcomes the evil forces that inflict calamity and sickness upon the human race. He went on to say that the global south, huge and growing Christian populations now make up what is called the third church, a form of Christianity that is likely to become dominant in the faith. The idea that Christianity is growing in the third world, places that are impoverished, places that are needy, Places that for us in the West we kind of give little thought to, 
I'll put it to you this way. If you just add up the Christian population in the country of Africa, and, the, and in, or the continent of Africa and the continent of South America, you have one billion Christians. One billion in Africa and in South America. It is estimated that there are more Christians who worship on a Sunday morning in China than there are in the United States. And what we're going to begin to see is that missionaries are actually going to be sent from the third world to the West instead of the other way around. And I want us this morning to not only wrestle with this, but this morning I want you to see why I think this is actually good news. Why would this be good news? Though it's discouraging perhaps to us as Americans, why is this good news for us as Christians? We're going to get three different lessons from three different younger brothers. And what I want us to see is that Christianity has always thrived, has always flourished as a younger brother. We'll see this in three ways. We'll look at three different figures, all centered around the story of Jacob. I want you to look at your sheet, Hebrews 11, verse 21. Hebrews 11, verse 21. Author of Hebrews writes, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. All right, so if you've been with us, you know we're working our way through the great hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, taking a pause, a stop at each uh, Old Testament figure and particularly the story that is mentioned by the author of Hebrews. And we think again, as we looked at last week in the story of Isaac, there's lots of different stories we could have looked at, but the one we looked at, it was the blessing of Jacob. And how Jacob, the younger brother, received a greater blessing than the older brother Esau. Today we're looking now at Jacob at the end of his life, bowing over the head of his staff, about to bless Joseph. And not only is he going to bless Joseph, he's going to bless Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what we're going to see in three different characters, first Jacob, and then Joseph, and then Ephraim, that God gives the blessing to the position of weakness, the position of poverty, he gives the position of the younger brother the greater blessing. Why? So first, let's look at Jacob. To look at Jacob's story, particularly on this part that the author of Hebrews is focusing in on, I want you to look at your sheet or turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 47. Genesis 47, 29 is where we're going to pick up the story. Genesis 47, 29, we're told that the time is drawing near that Israel must die. Now, we have to stop right there. What do we mean by Israel must die? Well, some of you, when you hear the word Israel, you're immediately thinking about the country. But what you might not realize is before there was a country, there was a man. A man who birthed the 12 tribes of Israel, a man that the country is named after, that the country was even birthed out of. And that man was Jacob. Before Jacob's name became Israel, it was 
Jacob, and we looked at him getting his name last week, if you were with us. Last week, if you were with us, we saw that Jacob, when he was born, he was named Jacob because the name Jacob means he cheats. The name Jacob literally means cheater. And we saw how Jacob was a cheat in his life, and he cheated his brother out of his birthright, that he weaseled his way into getting the blessing of God, and yet God honored that, which is good news for those of us who recognize we're cheaters too. But his name didn't stay Jacob. God actually changed his name. He changed his name to Israel. When did he do that? Why did he do it? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 32. This is where you might need a Bible. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 32, verse 24. Jacob's name was changed to Israel when he found himself in the middle of night wrestling with a strange and darkly figured man. That's the story of Genesis 32, verse 24. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Jacob means cheater. The name Israel means something along the lines of the one who contends with God. So here, Jacob's name is being changed from cheater to the one who strives, the one who contends with God, the one who contends with God and prevails. Verse 29, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. Jacob recognized that night he was not just wrestling with any man. He was wrestling with God himself. A pre-incarnate vision of God before Jesus wrestling with Jacob all night. And we see Jacob striving and contending with God, refusing to give up wrestling and wrestling to the point where God even has to put his hip out of socket. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. I want you to recognize briefly this morning the quality of Jacob's faith in this moment, what it's like. It's definitely not binary. It's not a yes or no. It's a striving, it's a contending, it's even a wrestling. Brothers, have you ever felt like your Christian faith felt more like a wrestle than it did anything else? Have you ever felt like you have wrestled with God? What we see in Genesis 32 is a picture of this wrestling is actually something that we should aspire to. 
to recognize that nine times out of ten, the Christian faith is not binary, it's not check a box, but it's a wrestle, it's a fight, and a one in which not only do we try to strive with all our might never to let God go, but you notice what did God do with Jacob? God never let him go. He held him there and wrestled with him to the point where he eventually subdued him. By his grace, by his mercy, he subdued Jacob. He put his hip out of joint so that he could bless him. Are you willing to wrestle with the Lord to recognize that sometimes that's what faith really feels like to us? But to recognize in that wrestling, God does not let us go. He will stop at nothing. He will even give us a severe mercy like putting a hip out of joint in order to subdue us so that he might bless us. That's what we see in Jacob, this younger brother, first getting the blessing from his father Isaac at the beginning of his life. Then Jacob, the younger brother, getting the blessing of God. To the point now at the end of his life, go back to Genesis 47 on your page. We're told that now his name is Israel. He's going to have, we'll look at this in just a second, 12 sons. These 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Their families that come from them will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're told it's now at the end of his life. His name is Israel and he must die. So verse 29, he calls on his son, Joseph. Joseph is his 11th son, by the way. We'll talk about that more in a second. He's one of the youngest He calls his son Joseph and said to him, If I've now found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. And all that meant the idea of the privacy of the thigh being a place of intimacy. It showed that the oath was solemn. So he puts the hand under the thigh and promised to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. So what does Jacob ask his youngest son, one of his youngest sons, to do for him? Well, by faith, he's asking that he wouldn't be buried in Egypt where he's risen to prominence, right? Where at least Joseph, his son's risen to prominence. He's saying, don't bury me in Egypt. Don't bury me where my ancestors came from Ur, where Abraham originally came from. No, bury me with my fathers. Bury me in the promised land. Though I won't die there put my bones there. The vision is, here's an old man at the end of his life over his staff. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, you may or may not notice this. In Genesis, in Genesis, we're told, verse 31, it says, he said to me, swear to me, and he swore to him, then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Do you see that? This is Genesis 47, 31. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now I want you to look again at Hebrews 11, verse 21, at the top of your page. So Jacob and Israel, remember the same person? By faith, Jacob, when dying, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Was it staff or is it bed? Which is it and why the discrepancy? Well, there's a simple explanation, but it actually is important. The simple explanation is this, that in the third century, Greek Jews 
made a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Septuagint they made so they could read it in their own language as Greeks, right? So Greek Jews and this Greek language being common among much of that region, they translated Old Testament Hebrew into Greek in the third century. That is the Bible that the New Testament writers used to write the New Testament. So as the author of Hebrews is getting his Bible out to him, the Old Testament, and it's written in Greek, he sees the word staff. Because the Septuagint translates the Hebrew word for bed into staff. Now that also gives us a clue because it helps us understand what ancient Jews thought of Hebrew. Hebrew does not always directly correlate into English or even Greek. Hebrew is a Eastern language, Greek, English, a Western language. They don't always go one-to-one. And so third century Jews, when they see this Hebrew word that you can literally translate bed, they understood it as staff. And that's the word then that is commonly understood today. It's the word that the author of Hebrews uses, and it's the word I want you to think about as you imagine um, Jacob at the end of his life as an old man, not bowing over his bed, but over his staff. Why does that matter? Well, the image of a staff was the image, think about Moses and his staff. It's the image of a journey, the image of redemption, of an exodus, the image of pilgrimage, right? Somebody who's walking with a staff is somebody who's making a long journey. Here's Jacob at the end of his journey, at the end of his journey of faith, at the end of his life, bowing his head over his staff in worship, asking that he would not be buried in Egypt, but that he be buried in the promised land. He recognized that he has a homeland that's greater, that there is a greater place to come. What do you want the end of your days to look like? What do you hope your faith might look like as you grow older as a man? We will not only look at Jacob, this younger brother, at the end of his life, looking back on all that God has done, the way that God had blessed him, we also see Joseph. Joseph's here. Joseph, as I mentioned, is the, ten, the 11th of 12, and he has quite the younger brother story. Some of you are younger brothers, and you've grown up being picked on your whole life by your older brother or brothers. You know what it feels like to be the youngest brother, to be the scrawny one, the runt, the one that could never seem to win a fight? You know what this feels like. I don't. I'm the older brother, and I have a little sister, so I don't even know what necessarily having a brother is like, but I don't totally know what it feels like. But I I do see and recognize in so many of my friends what it's like to be the youngest brother. I promise whatever you've been through, if you're a younger brother this morning, you, you did not go through what Joseph did as the younger brother. If you know the story of Joseph, Joseph's 10 older brothers were very jealous of him. Early in his life, Joseph had a couple dreams, one in particular where uh, basically the, the image is that his entire family, including his older brothers, are bowing down to him. And they didn't like that idea very much. And they didn't like Joseph very much because there was a family trait that had been passed down from Isaac. Remember, if you were with us last week, we saw how Isaac and his wife had favorites. 
Well, Jacob had a favorite too. His favorite was Joseph, and everybody knew it. His brothers knew it. And so if you know the story, Joseph's given a coat of many colors, right? And they hate this thing. It's a symbol of their father's favoritism towards Joseph, that he, even though he's the younger one, he's the one who should get nothing. I mean, we're talking about 12 brothers here. I mean, he should be at the bottom of the totem pole, and yet he's given favoritism, and so they hatch a plan. Their plan is really to kill him, but Reuben convinces them not to kill him but throw him into a pit, and eventually they sell him into slavery, and Jacob finds his play, or Joseph finds himself in Egypt of all places. Now, I don't have time to get into the entire story. It's an amazing story. It's well worth your time. There's more chapters in the book of Genesis dedicated to Joseph than any other figure because it's incredibly compelling. But what we see is Joseph as he sold into slavery in Egypt through the way that God orchestrated, again, a series of very broken events using very bad things for good. Joseph rises to power in Egypt. Now Joseph is now at the right hand of Pharaoh. He is the one with power and authority in Egypt, and then there's a famine. The whole land feels this, especially the people of, of Israel, right? So now Joseph's older brothers and his father Jacob are experiencing this famine, and they come to try to get food in Egypt, and who do they find? They find Joseph at the place of power. Find Joseph at the place of power. It's an incredible, incredible story of this younger brother being picked on, being marginalized, even sold into slavery, and yet experiences the blessing of God. And that's the point at which we pick this up in Genesis 48. It's there on your sheet. The point where Jacob is coming to Joseph is after his, they've been reunited, after Joseph has been into slavery, after Jacob realizes that Joseph is still alive, after they've, Joseph has now confronted his brothers, after all of this is when we, we're seeing Jacob coming to Joseph and asking to be buried in Egypt. And then now Genesis 48, verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father's ill, he's sick. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those are Joseph's two sons. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me and lose in the land of Canaan and bless me. He said, Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you, and I'll make you a company of peoples and give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who are born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Okay, so what is Jacob doing? Jacob's recognizing I was blessed. I received the blessing. Though I was the younger brother, I received the blessing over Esau. And now I'm passing that blessing on to you, Joseph. Remember, where is Joseph in the birth order? He's 11. The younger brother, once again, is getting the blessing. We'll see later as, as Jacob blesses all of his boys and gives them a vision of what the 12 tribes will look at, a special blessing is given to Joseph. Not only is he giving a special blessing to Joseph, this younger brother, but he's also saying that Joseph, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're going to be mine as if they were my own sons. 
He doesn't do that for any other of his kids. He says, Joseph, your kids, my grandchildren are now my sons, so much so that they will be having their own place in the tribes of Israel. It's an amazing turn to the point where we don't now look at the idea of Joseph being a tribe, but we look actually of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as having tribes. After all of this, when Jacob dies, at the end of all of this, Genesis 50, just listen, you don't have to turn there. His brothers again are wondering what Joseph might do. Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead and they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. After all, that's what brothers should do, right? This is what Joseph did or this is what we did to Joseph, now he's in the position of power and authority. What will he do to us? Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. (laughs) This is what he told us. Don't hurt us. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God and your father. Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, what's going on? Well, now that Jacob is finally dead, they're worried that maybe Jacob was their protection. Surely Joseph wouldn't do anything to them when their father was alive. But now that he's dead, maybe all bets are off. And so they're going to Joseph. They're saying, okay, our father is dead. Please don't hurt us. But this is what Joseph says, verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this is what we saw last week. What human beings meet for, meant for evil, God always uses for good. He did that in the life of Joseph. The greatest example I could think of this is the cross of Christ. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. So what we've seen so far is Jacob, the younger brother, receiving the blessing blessing from Isaac and the blessing of God. And we see Joseph, the younger brother, again, 11 in the birth order, receiving not only the blessing from his father Jacob, but now his own sons are going to receive a blessing. And that's where we're going to end this morning. We're looking at Ephraim. Again, there on your sheet, Genesis 48, verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, please bring them to me that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near and he kissed them and embraced them. If you were with us last week, you should be getting visions of the exact same thing that happened last week. You see a lot of the same details, right? Isaac His eyes were dim with age. He couldn't even see his own sons, Jacob and Esau. He couldn't even tell them apart, remember? And now, at the end of Jacob's life, his eyes are dim with age. He can't even see his own grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh to to Jacob. Jacob kisses them and embraces them. Verse 11, and Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. He thought he was dead. 
And behold, God has let me see your offspring after you. It's, it's an amazing picture. If you just stop and imagine this for a moment, those of you who have children and grandchildren, I mean, Jacob thought that Joseph had died. His sons, when they sold him into slavery, they brought him blood. They told their father he had died. And now at the end of his life, not only does he know that his son lives, but he has grandchildren. Right? This tender moment, a father to a son, a grandfather to his grandchildren. Verse 12, Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Then Joseph took both of them. So what's about to happen here? Again, he's at the end of his life. Just like Isaac last week's at the end of his life, going to bless, pass the blessing on. Jacob now at the end of his life is about to pass the blessings of God on. He's done it to Joseph. Now he says he's going to do it to the grandchildren. So Joseph has Ephraim and Manasseh. Now you've got to pay attention to this because it gets a bit confusing. Verse 13. So think about it this way. I'm Joseph, okay? You're Jacob. I'm coming to you, all right? Uh, go ahead and do it this way. This will be fun and dramatic, and I know as men we love stuff like this. I want you to put your hands out like this, okay? But kind of face me, all right? This is kind of weird, I know. But we have to get the, get the image of this. So I'm Joseph. I've got Ephraim and Asa. In my right hand I have Ephraim, the younger brother, and I'm putting it right here. And in my left hand, I have Manasseh, okay, the older brother, and I'm bringing him like this. If I do that to you like this, who am I bringing the older brother Manasseh to? Which hand? Your right hand. Throughout the Bible, sitting at the right hand is a place of honor and prominence. Manasseh is the older brother. Joseph is bringing the older brother to the place of prominence. As the older brother, he should get the greater blessing. You with me? Ephraim, in Joseph's right hand, is going to the left hand. Still going to receive a blessing, but not the greatest blessing. Okay, you can put your hands down. All right, now watch what happens. Love this. The Bible's amazing. Verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. So you have it now in your, in your mind. I'm Joseph. I'm bringing how I think it should go down. And his, father jo- and his father Jacob crosses his hands, putting his right hand, the hand of honor, greater blessing on the younger, his left hand of lesser blessing on the older. What just happened? Once again, the greater blessing has gone to the younger brother. Verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd, my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, or men, the angel that he wrestled with, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, the name Israel, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow in a multitude in the midst of the earth. God passing down the blessings of God to Joseph, his 11th born son, and the greater blessing to Ephraim, his youngest son. 
Joseph sees what's happening, verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He took his father's hand to move it to Ephraim's, from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. What do you think Joseph is thinking? Old man, you blind, you can't see. Let me help you. Let me help you, father. You don't realize who is who. And this is what Jacob says. Verse 19, his father refused. says, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. As we end this morning, the question I want you to begin to ask yourself and wrestle with your table, why does the younger brother always get the greater blessing? What's the point? And this theme doesn't stop here in the Bible, by the way. But we see it over and over and over again. We actually see it all the way back with Cain and Abel, the younger brother given the place of honor. We saw it last week with Jacob and Esau, the younger brother receiving the greater blessing. We see it with Joseph and his brothers, though his brothers sold him into slavery, though they spit on him and cursed him and left him for dead. It was Joseph who received the greater blessing from God. And here we see Ephraim getting the greater blessing before Manasseh. If you know the story of King David, where was David in the birth order of his brothers when Samuel came to Jesse? He wasn't even thought about by his dad as a potential king. He was the youngest. He was the weakling he was the one whom you'd least suspect, yet that is who God chose to be king. The parable of the sons. It's the younger brother who's the prodigal who returns, the older brother who's the self-righteous one who's left out of the party. We see it with Jew and Gentile, our older brothers the people of Israel who've gone before us, us as the younger brother, the Gentiles who've been grafted in. We see the language that Jesus Christ is called the second Adam. You could say that Jesus is the younger brother to Adam, and yet the one who's received the greatest blessing and honor. And then for us, who are we today? Well, last week we talked about Romans 8.28. Remember coffee mug theology? Romans 8.28 that says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The idea that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is Romans 8.29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus Christ is our older brother. And the blessing that God has given to him that should belong to him now belongs to us, all those who by faith receive his name, belong to the name of Jesus, trust in the death and resurrection of Christ. We are now the younger brother. The blessing that was meant for Jesus is now 
ours in Christ. This theme of the younger brother should give us hope. It should give us hope because the Christian faith has always flourished as the younger brother. It's always flourished from a position of weakness and poverty and dependence. And so while we look at our own country, the United States of America, and we look at the West, and we see that Christianity is losing its place of cultural prominence and power, we are seeing that it is growing in places where the younger brother is alive and well. In the third world and in China, the global south, to the peoples as Westerners we might least expect, we are seeing a shift where the center of Christianity is beginning to take root. And while this is discouraging for us as Americans, as Christians in the kingdom of God, it gives us hope. It gives us hope because we see that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is prevailing as it always has, for the younger brother. And what God is doing in our own country is he's preparing us as a Christian people to take our place as the younger brother once again. That once again, we and our country find our place as Christians and a place as the younger brother, picked on as Christians, thought of as weird No longer in the place of cultural power and prominence, but a place of great dependence and desperation. Christian faith has always thrived. It's always flourished from the position of the younger brother. So by faith, brothers, as the younger brother, the one who we've been given, the older brother, Jesus Christ, my prayer for you and for me is that we, with great dependence, with great need, with great faith, we would gladly take our place as the younger brother, not only in our culture, but in the kingdom of God. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Lord, we're thankful for the Bible. What an amazing, uh, to call it a book does not do it justice. Lord, your word um, reveals so much to us and these great themes that are an image, a type for us that help us to understand our place in the kingdom of God. Lord, thank you for the story of the younger brother. Thank you for the hope that it gives us to know what it means to come to you in a place of weakness, a place of dependence, a place that recognizes that when we are weak, you are strong. We thank you that you have had a tendency of giving the greatest blessing to the least of these. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that you are bestowing on the least of these throughout our world. And Lord, we pray that as we become, as American Christians, the least of these once again, that we would know your blessing and that we would know our place in the kingdom, a place of dependence and a place of desperation as, your, um, as the younger brothers of your son, Jesus, who've been drawn into the family of God. Lord, be with us now as we discuss these things. In Jesus' name, amen.